It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, June 21st, and I am Tony Vernetti from Feds. And my co-host is Chris Keevan, a partner at the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Tony. How are you? Good. We're excited. We have a really exciting show for you today. Chris and I are excited because it's a sort of, you know, as two lawyers, it's a show a little bit about, you know, lawyers. So, you know, we hope you all think it's exciting as well. We're going to be talking about, you know, we, we've called it a title of Ethics and Accountability with Government Lawyers. Um, but to aid in this discussion, we've invited the professional association that represents the interests of one of the most prestigious groups, for my money, of government attorneys that are out there, the men and women that work for the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, around the country. Uh, So we are very pleased uh, to have with us. So let me introduce Larry Leiser, who is the president of the National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys. Larry is also an assistant U.S. attorney over here at the Eastern District of Virginia. Good morning, Larry. Thanks so much for taking some time to be with us today. Good morning, and thank you for having me. So before we get started, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management, OPM-sponsored federal long-term care insurance programs. So if you want more information about long-term care, long-term care insurance, please go to ltcfeds.com. That's ltcfeds.com. Larry, let me start with... um, kind of um, having you introduce your association um, to our listeners. And, and I'm certain, because you're a Department of Justice lawyer, that you probably have to get some disclaimers out first. I do. <laughs> I am a Department of Justice lawyer, but I'm not here today in my capacity as an attorney for the Department of Justice or as an AUSA for the Eastern District of Virginia. I'm here today in my capacity as president of the National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys. So anything that I say should not be attributed to the department or my U.S. attorneys or our office, but strictly the opinion of the National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys. Thank you for letting me get that out so I can keep my job. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, let you, we'll let you go back to that any time you want. Anytime we ask a question you don't want to answer, we'll go back to the disclaimer. Great. But um, so tell us about um, the association, a little bit of, of you know, its history um, sort of when it was formed, why it was formed, and what are the kind of some of the issues um, it looks at for its members. Let me give you a little of my personal history. I've, I started out as a county prosecutor in New Jersey, uh, and in 1978, I became a, a trial attorney for the narcotics and dangerous drugs section at the Department of Justice. And from there, I became uh, an AUSA for the Eastern District of Virginia in 1983. During my Early years at the department, um, many of us uh, around the country recognized that uh, the retention rate for assistant United States attorneys was extremely low. Uh, Four or five years, you were a a long-termer. A lot of people just stayed for two or three. Uh, Many of us thought that this was uh, not good for the citizens of our country. Um, We needed to establish a, a better relationship with the federal agents that we worked with. Uh, and decided that uh, we should do something about it. A group of us got together. Uh, the Department of Justice uh, decided to, uh, through the Attorney General's Advisory Committee, set up a, a subcommittee on retention. Uh, that committee came up with a um, survey of various options uh, that was sent to every AUSA in the country at the time, uh, the purpose of which was to find out what methods or benefits would help um, retain AUSAs longer so we could better serve the public and uh, the agents that we worked with. Uh, as a result of that survey, um, the department uh, took some minor steps, but not sufficient in our belief, and we came to the realization that we needed to have a better voice at the department as assisting United States attorneys 
and formed the National Association of Assisted United States Attorneys uh, in 1991. So tell our, just quickly, sort of tell our listeners that may not be familiar, you know, of, of you know, who the, the, the Assistant United States Attorneys are, um, you know, they're in, in, you know, every state around the country. And I'd like to, you know, these, I like to call them, these is the government's, you know, they're the main litigators. This is one of the, you know, the most important law firm, you know, that we have in our country, you know, on behalf of our country is sort of how, you know, in my naive way of sort of explaining them to folks out there. But if you could kind of, you know, in, in your own words, you know, how would you explain, you know, who they are to our listeners? I'd be happy to do that. Uh, the Department of Justice has about 10,000 uh, attorneys that work for the department uh, here in the United States and in other locations around the world. Of those 10,000, approximately 6,000 are assistant United States attorneys. Assistant United States attorneys uh, work in 94 uh, district uh, U.S. attorneys' offices around the country and Guam uh, as well. Um, each U.S. attorney's office is headed by a United States attorney who's a presidential appointee confirmed by the Senate. Uh, U.S. attorneys come and go with the changes in administration, assisting United States attorneys, of which is about 6,000 of us, uh, are not political appointees. We um, are public uh, federal employees and uh, located in those 94 uh, U.S. attorney's offices. Um, we are uh, part of the world's largest law firm, uh, the Department of Justice, and uh, our responsibilities are broken into two parts. We do represent the United States before all the federal courts throughout the country. And um, our responsibilities are broken into two segments, essentially, criminal and civil. About 85% of us work at the criminal level. Uh, about 15% uh, represent the United States for civil actions that are brought against the United States. So I didn't realize that percentage. It's, it's a lot higher than I, than I, than I would have thought. So, mm -hmm. so at least 80% are, are essentially we would call prosecutors. Yes, federal right. prosecutors. Right. And, and and these are ones that are, you know, prosecuting, you know, all your federal crimes, the ones that people would would identify with and, and see on see on TV. Right. We we uh, represent the government uh, and we work with the FBI, DEA, ATF, IRS, uh, Homeland Security. Any federal crime that's committed has to be brought through uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, if you want to get somebody arrested and a complaint, that complaint's going to be reviewed by an assistant United States attorney and presented to a magistrate judge. If you want to get something indicted, it has to go through the U.S. Attorney's Office. Only the U.S. Attorney or assistant United States attorneys can actually appear before the grand jury uh, to present uh, whatever evidence we may have uh, that will result in an indictment. And obviously, AUSAs are the trial attorneys. So when it comes to a criminal case being tried, assistant United States attorneys represent the United States in that regard. So you mentioned, um, like when you started your career, what what the we talked about the, the formation of of NASA, which is the association we're talking about, um, that we were concerned about the turnover. You know, and I certainly get that. I mean, it's the largest and one of the most important law firms we're calling it in the government. And if you're constantly turning over lawyers every five years, you don't have continuity. Um, you know, you're 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 losing you know a lot there. Um, in, throughout your career, um, you know, how have you sort of seen that change? You know, are you seeing, you know, more longevity? Are people sticking around, you know, a whole career? And I guess I would also, also ask the recruitment process, you know, are, are, you, are you getting lawyers, young, or I call baby lawyers, right out of law school, starting with DOJ, and then they're, they're making it a career you know, or, or do you, or does DOJ recruit mid-level attorneys? If you can just sort of give us a, a snapshot of, I threw a lot on, on the plate there. Yeah. <laughs> Eat whatever you want. You've, you've asked a lot of questions. Uh, during the course of my career, I've been with the department now for over 40 years. Things have changed, uh, um, in part because uh, the economy's changed. Uh, there are more lawyers out there competing for positions. And uh, so we, we tend to retain for slightly longer periods of time AUSAs than we did when I first started. Um, but in our major cities, uh, for instance, in New York City, uh, the retention rate is still in that four to five year period. Uh, in the more remote areas of our country, uh, Idaho, North Dakota, people tend to stay uh, longer and make a career out of it. 
Um, so there has been a transition, a movement towards more and more of our colleagues staying for longer periods of time. But we still think it would be um, better to increase that retention. The, the other thing that's changed pretty dramatically over the last uh, 20 years or so is the, the nature of our, our role in law enforcement. Uh, the Congress keeps passing more and more federal statutes. Um, we have greater responsibilities. Uh, as the federal government, uh, one of the benefits we have is we have uh, nationwide jurisdiction. Uh, each state, as you know, is its own sovereign, has its own um, attorney generals and law enforcement prosecutors, but uh, they're limited to their jurisdiction. At the federal level, we can go wherever the crime takes us, even outside of our country. Um, we can prosecute or, and extradite folks that are committing violations of our, uh, of our federal laws. So you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We're going to continue our discussion with Larry Leiser from the National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys about the important work that career government lawyers perform at the U.S. Attorney's offices. But first, a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Hi, welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I'm Chris Keevan, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Vernetti, and we're talking with Larry Leiser from the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys. Now, Larry, before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about uh, the AUSA uh, turnover and recruitment process of how these uh, attorneys are hired. Now, one of the issues with, with turnover, uh, from, from my perspective, uh, given my line of work, is, of course, the, the ethical issues and the legal issues that face the attorneys when they decide to depart the, the government. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, em employees and uh, in, in U.S. Uh, government attorneys cannot uh, seek employment or uh, obtain employment on, uh, with an organization that has a financial interest in which that attorney is, is, is working on, on, on a matter. And so I just wanted to ask you, um, as far as the, the turnover, are, what kind of um, issues face AUSAs as they um, seek a tournament? And are you guys giving, in your view, from AUSA's view, are you guys given sufficient, I guess, uh, training and information about those ethical and potentially even criminal risks? You guys have asked me a lot of questions. Let me just follow up with, <laughs> with Tony's. Uh, I wanted to make it clear to the, the people we're talking to today that the department uh, has uh, two kind of hiring programs. They have an honors program where they hire the best and the brightest. Uh, uh, they go to the Department of Justice. Uh, they're uh, people who graduate from our most prestigious law schools, uh, Oftentimes, they have clerked at some level. So that's one way that we hire people through the honors program. But in every U.S. attorney's office in the country, the um, demand to be an assistant United States attorney is, is very high. We have literally hundreds of people that apply to my office in the Eastern District of Virginia. Uh, today, we're hiring people that, again, graduate from the most prestigious law schools, often clerk at the appellate or district court level. So it, it's perceived as a very prestigious job because it gives you a great opportunity and experience to learn how to practice law. Um, most of us, I th I'd like to think all of us, do it because we believe in the nature of what we do, an opportunity to serve our country, uh, protect the innocent, prosecute the guilty, uh, is very motivating for all of us. Uh, so the, the demand for the job is, is quite high, um, but we still are competing with the reality that um, uh, in the private sector, uh, most of our legal colleagues can make considerably more money. Uh, and uh, at some point, many of us uh, uh, look at that reality and decide that they have to move on. I've never known a former AUSA who hasn't said 
being an assistant United States attorney is the best job I ever had. I'd go back and do it in a nanosecond if I could make the same amount of money I'm making right. in the private sector. Right. I mean, it certainly is, you know, one of the most um, prestigious jobs, you know, out there as you're coming out of, you know, law school and, and if you're clerking, whatever, you know, just by way of example, nobody was recruiting me to be in AUSA <laughs> when I got out of law school. You know, but so that's my question is, is they, you know, how does I mean is the obviously there's a call to public service you know I think I don't care how prestigious it is um, you know the people that are coming into these jobs in my experience have offers from big law firms you know and things like that but there is some you know within them a calling you know for for public service um, you know you know how does that sort of you know balance you know you know work with them you know when does somebody like yourself, decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to make a career of this. You know, what, what, are, what are those reasons? Well, actually, a lot of the people that we're hiring come from big law firms. They've been there that's, for three yeah, or four years, and, yeah. and uh, for whatever reasons, they've decided that uh, uh, they'd like to get into the public sector and, and become an assistant United States attorney. Uh, uh, many of them leave because they're not getting that trial experience, and, and they want to be able to do that, and they want to be able to uh, represent the public uh, and do the kind of work that we as assistant United States attorneys do. So there's no lack of demand to become an assistant United States attorney. The problem we have is keeping people for the long term, having more career prosecutors. There's a lot to know. There's a lot to learn. Uh, and working with the agents, uh, uh, having them know that you're there with them for the long term um, is, is beneficial, we believe, to the public. And Larry, is your association – uh, what, what if anything, are, are you guys promoting or, or any efforts you're making to try to uh, keep uh, these, um, these lawyers from, from leaving? Because obviously, they, as Tony said, they are the best and the brightest. They get this great experience and a very prestigious, prestigious job. And so I'm, I'm sure a lot of AUSAs have opportunities to go elsewhere. Um, what, what, if anything, is your association doing to, to try to prevent that turnover? Well, we're doing several things. One of the issues we're dealing with is uh, the reality that there's a pay disparity between department attorneys who work for the Bureau of Prisons, who work for ATF, who work for the FBI, who work for the department themselves. They're not assistant United States attorneys. They are Department of Justice attorneys who are paid under the GS schedule. Uh, for some reason, we haven't quite figured out when it started. AUSAs are paid under the administratively determined schedule. It's a different pay schedule. And there's some inequities in the schedule that cause um, department attorneys to be better compensated, especially in the early years, uh, than AUSAs. And a lot of assistants around the country um, think that's not right, think it's not fair, and think that equal pay, equal work, assuming we're all doing the, the same kind of work as attorneys for the Department of Justice should get equal pay. So that's one of the big issues we're trying to get resolved with the department to uh, pay us the same rate of pay as they pay other attorneys within the Department of Justice. That's stunning to me when I when I realized that, you know, that that there was that 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 disparity. You know, I understand certain demo projects and things like that with particular, you know, agencies that have unique funding authority, but but that really is is stunning to me when I when I learned that. Has has anyone explained the the policy or rationale behind that? Well, let, let me give you a couple examples and let me answer your, your question. For instance, because I'm in Alexandria, Virginia, right across from the, the river to the department, we routinely lose um, our people to the department who pick up twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 just by moving from being an AUSA to becoming a department attorney in one shape, form, or another. Uh, that's true for Maryland. It's certainly true for the District of Columbia, and it's true in other places around the country. The converse is true as well. There are people that work for the Department of Justice for whatever reason want to become an AUSA in some other location in the country. They take a twenty, thirty to forty thousand dollar pay cut to to do that. So it's 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 an issue that uh, we're working on, and we're hoping that this administration will will correct by switching us all to the GS schedule and um, asking the Congress in their next budget to fund the difference. We've been told by the department that the difference uh, to make it equal. 
uh, would be about $42 million. So that can be fixed by the executive branch? You don't need congressional legislation for that other than money to pay for it? My understanding is the attorney general has the authority to switch us from the AD schedule to the GS schedule. Uh-huh. In order to eliminate the, the current disparity, they'd have to get uh, additional funds, and we've asked them to do that uh, uh, and we're still working on I, that. I would like for you to just sort of comment on behalf of all AUSAs, but you know, we talk about you know when there's a change in administration, there are new U.S. attorneys that come in and they are politically appointed. Um, but but just speak sort of to the apolitical nature of you know the the AUSA core as a general. You know, the, you you know you work under different administration. We do, and uh, that's the, the, the system. It's a good system. Uh, it, it allows the, the people to elect officials that uh, they want to uh, uh, have support their beliefs, their policies, and that trickles down from the president to the attorney general to the various uh, presidentially appointed U.S. attorneys. Uh, as an assistant United States attorney, we uh, uh, come to understand that that's how the system works, uh, and uh, uh, it, it uh works okay. Uh, we are not political. Uh, matter of fact, uh, there's many rules and regulations in the Department of Justice that would preclude us from being involved in political activities, including the Hatch Act. So um, we realize that policy changes are going to be made, but the substance of the law, the actual statutes themselves don't change. What we do essentially remains the same. I'll give you a good example. Uh, years ago when Edwin Meese was the attorney general, uh, uh, one of his priorities was adult obscenity, and uh, he had a, a segment of the department, a unit that was uh, designated to prosecute adult obscenity cases around the country. I don't think today we prosecute any adult obscenity cases. A lot's changed since Ed Meese was attorney general, but, you know, these kinds of – some administrations put more emphasis on uh, uh, white-collar crimes, some drugs. Uh, after 9-11, obviously – uh, there was an emphasis on terrorism, and we've created a lot of terrorism units, uh, people that focus on that. I mean, we all we all work for people, you know, and policy initiatives, you know, will will change. You know, I, w- I was a, a lawyer for ATF, a government mm-hmm. lawyer, and, and over dis- you know, you you carry out, you know, those initiatives. But but, you know, at its core, you know, what I'm you know trying to say is, you know, these career prosecutors, you know, are not political, you know, you know. It's nor either, should they be, it, and and nor can they either, be as a legal matter. Right, They're right. It, clearly it, not permitted to participate. We we don't make as AUSAs our decisions are not made on a political basis. We follow the policies of the department, which is scrutinized by the public, the press, um, and uh, we just um, it, the it, rule of law for us is the dominating consideration. Right, right. it's either a crime or it's not. <laughs> now, Larry, you mentioned uh, how policy. F- issues and focus can certainly change with a new administration, a, a new USA attorney. If you could uh, perhaps walk us through kind of how a day-to-day life of an AUSA might change as a new administration or a new AUSA arrives, whether it's a, those changes in policy or if there are any other impacts on, on the day-to-day life of an AUSA. Well, again, there's, there's 93 U.S. attorneys. We just had a, a turnover as a result of the last election. And uh, you, so you've got 93 new U.S. attorneys who come in and, and uh, they have their own uh, philosophy, uh, their, their own uh, perspective on how the office should be run from a managerial point of view. Um, so it, it uh, varies from office to office in many ways, but the Department of Justice also has uh, specific rules and regulations that the U.S. attorneys are required to follow. So you have these 93 uh, fiefdoms in a way that are overseen by the Department of Justice. So they have a lot of flexibility, but it is limited um, to uh, overall department guidance and guidelines. And it doesn't happen overnight. There's not 93, you know, new yeah. U.S. attorneys. There's holdovers, there's actings. and Right. Um, right. It takes, it's a process that's ongoing uh, every time there's a change in the administration. I mean, is it for career, you know, you know career prosecutors such as yourself, um, I mean, is it, is it business as usual? I mean, does, does, does I'd say it's 90% it, business as usual. We, we're going to continue to work with our agents. We're going to continue to look at the cases that are brought to us. We're going to continue to always 
maintain our, our primary job, which is to protect the innocent, to make sure that no innocent person is ever wrongfully accused, let alone yeah. prosecuted for a crime. And also, obviously, we want to make sure that those who have violated our laws are brought to the bar of justice. And, and, that, and, and that's sanctioned. my point. I think that's what sort of like people who are sort of outside the government don't appreciate when we do have a change. We have this civil you know, change in, in administration that it's, it's not as disruptive as you think. Um, to the, you know, and, and even, you know, with my professional liability insurance company, you know, I'll get calls from news media, news outlets every time we change the House, Senate, presidency, you know, do, am I anticipating things to be different? And the answer is no. You know, I've been, you know, it's usually, you know, I mean, the government runs very efficiently sort of on its own, you know, with the career people that are supposed to be, you know, doing the, the good job that, that they do. You know, and, and, and it's the same for, I think, for Department of Justice. We're going to have to stop here for our second break. We'll continue our discussion after this break and our word from our sponsor. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Hi, welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Now, Larry, uh, you had made a comment earlier that that stuck with me. Uh, You had mentioned that part of the the role and the responsibilities of the AUSAs is protecting the innocent. Now, most people, we think of federal prosecutors. We, of course, think of, you know, going after the bad guys and, and bringing justice uh, to those who, who break the law. Uh, could, could you uh, elaborate on, on kind of the other side of that coin in that the responsibility and the duty to protect the innocent? Yeah. Our primary ethical uh, responsibilities are, are to make sure that no innocent person is wrongfully charged, let alone convicted of a crime. Every federal agent that wants to pursue a criminal event has to work through and assist the United States attorney. They can't get a complaint without an assistant reviewing it. They can't get an indictment. They can't get the case tried, and they certainly don't do the appeals. Of course, the judicial branch is looking over what we do as well. The whole point of our criminal system of justice in this country is to make sure as best we can that that the justice is well served and no innocent person is wrongfully convicted. And I I have an interesting quote from uh, Justice Scalia in the case of uh, Kansas versus March. In that um, case, it was a death penalty case, Um, Justice Scalia referred to a study that was done over a 15-year period. The purpose of the study was to determine how many convicted people were actually found at the end of the day to be innocent. In other words, how many times did the system fail? And here's what he said. He's talking about this professor who conducted the study over a 15-year period of both federal and state crimes. Let's give the professor the benefit of the doubt, Scalia says. Let's assume that he understated the number of innocents by roughly a factor of 10. Then instead of 340, there were 4,000 people in prison who weren't involved in crime in any way during that same 15-year period. Of course, even with its distorted, in his view, Scalia's view, um, concept of what constitutes exoneration, the claims of the article are fairly modest. Between 1989 and 2003, the author identified 340 exonerations nationwide, not just for capital cases, mind you, nor even just for murder convictions, but for various felonies. And there was a prosecutor out in Oregon, and Scalia is going to talk about him now, quote, 
Uh, Joshua Marquise, a district attorney in Oregon, recently responded to this article as follows. During that same 15 years, there were more than 15 million felony convictions across the country. That would make the error rate 0.027%. I'm quoting from Scalia's opinion. Or, to put it in another way, a success rate of 99.973%. Professor Paul Cassell at the University of Utah recently did a similar study and came up with a percentage of just under 1%. Wow. I mention this because I think the public's entitled to know that assistant United States attorneys do their job very well, and the system of justice does its job very well, and that is to make sure, as best we can, that there's never an innocent person that is, is charged or convicted or serves a day in, in, uh, in, in jail and loses his freedom. Well, I think those, those statistics certainly reflect some of the things we've talked about in the, the high quality mm-hmm of attorneys that the Department of Justice is able to recruit and, and bring into these positions. Um, however, the other side of that coin is, you know, obviously these are human beings and, and they do make mistakes. And one piece uh, ensuring that AUSAs behave professionally and ethically that I think a lot of the general public probably doesn't know about, but this is where in my practice I interact most with uh, assistant U.S. attorneys is the Office of Professional Responsibility. Now, for those that don't know, OPR, uh, they are an office inside the the Department of Justice that is responsible for investigating professional misconduct by any uh, and all Department of Justice lawyers. So AUSAs or, you know, an ATF lawyer, um, you know, an FBI lawyer, et cetera. Um, and, And generally, How that process undergoes is that when people file complaints to OPR to report an allegation of of attorney misconduct, uh, OPR then will review the complaint uh, and determine whether or not to uh, conduct an inquiry or if not initiate a a full investigation. Um, And then, of course, if there is a finding of of misconduct, um, whether intentional misconduct, reckless misconduct, they then um, can take disciplinary action against the AUSA. And in some cases where there's a potential violation of a bar rule, refer it to uh, that attorney's respective uh, bar where they're licensed. Uh, now, Larry, um, does obviously OPR does a, uh, performs an important role, an important function for, for both the department and the public. Uh, I guess is there any – from NAA USA's perspective, uh, is there any way that you guys have tried to perhaps improve the, the OPR process? Well, the department is very vigilant about making sure that AUSAs and all department attorneys are following the rule of law and their ethical responsibilities to see that uh, the justice system works well. OPR facilitates that. Uh, they are the, the department's watchdog over AUSAs and the department attorneys. Uh, they take their job very seriously. They're very professional. There's about 25 attorneys that work uh, for OPR, and uh, they receive about 1,000 complaints, most of which are frivolous, um, some of which uh, are open for inquiry, some of which go to the investigative stage. As you mentioned, um, last year, uh, the last year they, they collected data, which is 2017, I think they had approximately 13 instances where uh, department attorneys, not necessarily AUSAs, uh, actually um, were found to either intentionally or recklessly uh, make a decision uh, in violation of their uh, responsibilities. Um, OPR makes those facts known not only to us but to the public. And that's the uh, the annual report that's you're referring to? the annual report. And um, so – there's no, no profession where everybody's perfect uh, and people do make mistakes. Uh, I'd like to think that they, and I know from the facts that they're far and few between when you think about uh, 10,000 Department of Justice lawyers uh, and last uh, 2017, 13 were found to have um, violated to some degree their uh, ethical obligations. It's, it's a small number, but it, it sh- the number should be zero. But again, uh, nobody's perfect, and uh, the department does a, a great job. And the other thing the department does a, a good job at is educating its attorneys about their ethical responsibilities. When new attorneys are hired, they go through an orientation program. Uh, they go down to the uh, the NAC, the National Academy uh, down in South Carolina, 
for it's called a boot camp. Uh, much of that time is spent on trying to inform them of what their duties, responsibilities, and ethics are. And then when they go back to their office, they work under senior assistants who scrutinize and, and supervise their, uh, their cases. So we, we do as best as we can, I think, at the present time to make sure that our attorneys are uh, well-informed of their duties and responsibilities. And if somebody should cross the line, um, OPR is there to uh, look at it and, um, and sanctions. Uh, actually, OPR doesn't do the sanctions anymore. It's the Prosecutorial Misconduct Review Unit, which is another a section of the Department of Justice that reviews OPR's findings when there is misconduct and determines what the sanction should be. And in some instances, it's removal. In other instances, it's suspension. In some instances, it's a letter of reprimand. It depends on the nature uh, and um, the quality of the, the offense. If you in, in, in my just so just the kind of my perspective on this, um, you know, it, it's the rare U.S. attorney that's intentionally doing wrong, in my opinion. Um, you know, you're in the courtroom. You know, it's real world litigation. Some of us like to think we were litigators. This is real world litigation. It's happening. It's coming at you fast, right? It's coming at you like a hundred mile an hour, you know, baseball. And so there are a lot of things that happen in there, and, and judges make rulings, and they'll make evidentiary rulings. They'll dismiss cases, you know, you know all these things that happen during the course of litigation that necessitate a referral to OPR. It's required. You know, and it's not like the, the, the U.S. attorney did anything wrong. And then I think to everybody's point here, and Chris is your point, I want to get your opinion on this. Um, you know, nobody's perfect. And if you want to, you know, second guess things with hindsight and put a magnifying glass over it, you know, a, a microscope, you know, you know, nobody's, nobody's perfect. And I'm certain you see, you know, in your, in your practice, a lot of, a lot of that stuff happening. Oh, absolutely. Uh, having represented quite a few AUSAs who have gone through this process, um, it's, you know, oftentimes it's a one comment or one question, one statement during a trial, during a cross-examination, during a closing argument after a two-week trial that then gets subject to review. And I've had several cases where these are relatively young attorneys, maybe their first, second trial. And then when OPR comes in and, you know, you sense have this, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, second guessing every little decision. And so on one hand, as an attorney, I, I certainly empathize. I, I wouldn't want someone to go back and review every <laughs> statement I made in my very first trial. Um, but on the other hand, you certainly can appreciate the, the importance of OPR because, again, these AUSAs have a lot of power, a lot of responsibility. We want our, the Department of Justice, our, our nation's uh, main law enforcement organization, to be held to a very high professional ethical standard. So I think it's fascinating, you know, this kind of competing interests. On one hand, you know, I think it's for the public good, but on the other hand, you know, you, you, like I said, sometimes I, I very much pers personally empathize with, with my clients going through this who, you know, a year after the fact are having to explain, uh, you know, through much second guessing and questioning that one, you know, why did you ask that, that one question on cross-examination that, of course, becomes a, a major issue in a judge's order or even on, you know, on, on appeal. Um, just some other data I wanted to throw out to piggyback off what Larry said, because I, too, uh, looked at the, the OPR's annual report before we left. Uh, Larry focused on the, the small number of, of adverse findings, of findings of misconduct. Um, just some other numbers. In, in fiscal uh, 17, there were 636 complaints made to OPR, and 72 of those result in the opening of an investigation or inquiry. Uh, and then in FY uh, 2016, there were 659 complaints that resulted in 64 uh, investigations or, or, or um, inquiries. And then, of course, Larry's numbers even smaller than that of how many times there was actually a, a finding of misconduct. So, again, as I, I said before, I, I think that really 
reflects the, the quality of, of the AUSAs that the government's able to recruit and, and hire and, you know, and also just the, the call to service and, and the, how these individuals do act in good faith and take their roles and responsibilities very and, seriously. And, and the transparency here is so very important. Chris, as you said, they have a tremendous amount of power. You're a federal prosecutor. You know, the criminal case starts and ends with you. You know, the end result is taking somebody's liberty away, right? Um, you know, so they need to be above reproach. And I love all the transparency that we have here um, in the OPR process because the public needs to have confidence, you know, that that they're, you know, that they're looking at this. Um, and, you know, and it's my experience, and, and Chris, I'd ask you what your experience is, that I think most prosecutors get that. You know, even oh, though they're they're clearly annoyed that they've right. just been notified by OPR. No, speaking, yeah, obviously, you know, very anecdotally, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of my clients who go through this process, on one hand, they they understand why OPR exists, they respect the process, but of course, you know, they feel very defensive because they're their professional ethics and their professional conduct is being called into question. And I think that's something, you know, every lawyer takes very seriously. You know, every lawyer, uh, at least, you know, for the most part, you know, is very concerned in, about, you know, you don't want to be accused of being unethical, of being unprofessional, being subjected to a, a bar complaint or, or something of, of that nature. Uh, but, but Tony, to your point about the the transparency of it, uh, actually, OPR's website is, is quite informative. They, they have a a document called the, the analytical framework where they de- describe the, the standards that they use um, in the various findings that they make. There's intentional misconduct, there's reckless misconduct, and then they also have lesser uh, findings such as poor judgment or mistake. Um, and, and so, and then there's, they also published all their policies and procedures so that the general public can, can certainly be, be aware, um, which, which again, you know, to echo Tony's point, I, I think that transparency is, is certainly, you know, something very good and, and, and very valued. So we're going to need to stop here for our final break and hear a word from our sponsor. When we return, we'll wrap up our discussion with Larry Leiser from the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Hi, welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are entering the home stretch of our show today uh, here with Larry Leiser from the National Association of U.S. Attorneys. Uh, Larry, um, wanted to talk about some, some ethical issues that AUSAs face on a daily basis and, and how they confront those. Um, so I, I guess one, I guess, seminal question that, that lawyers face that I think is a little obscure when you're representing the government is who is the client? Well, the client is, is, is the, we represent the United States. The client is the United States uh, and indirectly, therefore the people of the United States. And we have a high duty and responsibility to uh, our country. Uh, we take an oath of office uh, to uphold the rules and, and uh, uh, enforce the law fairly without any bias or prejudice uh, and every assistant United States attorney knows that going into it and is well-trained on that. And I should say that we should be held to the highest standard. We are, we are doing something that is critically vital to uh, every person that uh, gets brought into the system. There's the threat of losing their freedom and all the consequences that go with being a convicted uh, uh, felon. So there's a lot at stake, and we as prosecutors should be held to the very highest ethical uh, responsibilities. One of the things the department has done over the last recent years is created the professional misconduct, excuse me, the professional responsibility advisory office, PREO. Uh, that's an opportunity for AUSAs around the country to call to the Department of Justice if they have a question about an ethics issue or 
um, how to proceed in uh, with their duties and responsibilities. They can call uh, highly trained uh, professionals at the department uh, and ask them, you know, what should I be doing here? And Preo will uh, give them some advice and guidance. And uh, one of the motivators for us to check with Preo is the fact that uh, whatever guidance and advice they give us, even if they're wrong, we're off the hook because we did reach out to try to get the right <laughs> it's answer. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card? Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card because they're supposed to know what they're doing, and they do. They do a great job, and it's a great vehicle for us to make sure we're doing our job um, correctly. And, and again protect the innocent, make sure we don't. Uh, so it used to be that you would, every district had its own sort of PREO, had a, an ethics official that, that you went to. Are they bypassing that no, now? Or are they no. involved? Each, each, you're, thanks for bringing that up, Tony. Each office has its own ethics uh, advisor. Uh, you would go to him first and run it by him. And then if he thought it was something that was beyond his uh, area of expertise, he would then recommend going to PREO. Oftentimes he'll go to PREO on your behalf just to make sure we're getting it right. So the reason that there's so few um, of the 6,000 AUSAs out there on a yearly basis who are found to have made a bad judgment or um, uh, acted recklessly is in part because the department trains us well, uh, and in part because prayer is available to us. And I'd like to think the greatest part is because of the nature of the people that perform the job. People who come to be assistant United States attorneys are highly motivated to do good, if you will. They want to serve justice. And yeah, while in the spirit of ethics and disclaimers, while I'm not rendering any legal advice today, uh, Larry is correct in that there is a, a federal regulation uh, that applies the ethical standards for all government employees, that it is a defense, that if you seek out your agency's uh, ethics officer um, for advice on an issue and then follow that ethics officer advice, that is a defense uh, against a subsequent claim. Uh, likewise, if you read OPR's published material on their website, it, it references that that is also uh, a defense for AUSAs, that if they sought out the advice of a supervisor, an ethics official, and, and followed it. Now, uh, Larry, we talked earlier about uh, AUSAs leaving government, some of the ethical issues that, that they might face. Uh, similarly, if, if a AUSA or would want to engage in some pro bono work, um, if you would, uh, maybe if you could share with us, what are some of the just the run-of-the-mill, day-to-day type ethical issues that, that might arise for an AUSA? I'm going to get to that in just a minute. I just want to make one more point about uh, the Office of Professional Responsibility. The one thing that our association is trying to get them to reconsider is the burden of proof. The current burden of proof is preponderance of the evidence. And we think for the consequences that go with an adverse finding, which essentially can be the loss of your job. Uh, these matters are frequently reported, re reported to the Bar Association. You can use your bar license. That the standard of proof should be what it is for every other, almost every other Bar Association and the American Bar Association. The evidence should be clear and convincing, not just a preponderance. So it's something we're working with the department on now. Uh, we just recently sent a letter to the new head of uh, OPR and asked to meet with him. And this is the issue. And just for the lay person out there to give a picture of what these, you just throw words around, right, Natal? Yeah. It, it's, you know, preponderance of the evidence is like 51%, right? You think of the scales of justice, it's just slightly, you know, skewed, whereas beyond a reasonable doubt is one way all the way to the other, and clear and convincing is somewhere, you know, you know, in the middle. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's something, you know, a little bit more significant. Yeah. We should be held to the highest standard, but we should be uh, entitled to uh, a review that uh, results in something based upon clear and convincing evidence, not just the, the scales to 51 percent as opposed and, to. And are you having a question just for the association? I mean, is NOS, I mean, do you appreciate that you're having a meaningful dialogue with the department you know, on, on that issue? We've raised it a couple, three years ago. We weren't successful in convincing them. Um, at the time, but um, we, we think we need to go back uh, and, and uh, go at it again because it's very important. And it's part of uh, just basic fairness. I mean, all the other state bar associations, almost all the others, and the American Bar Association have that clear and convincing standard, and we think it's appropriate for AUSAs or other department attorneys to be held to that same 
um, you know, that seemed. Yeah, that's great. interesting because I know for uh, the District of Columbia bar, it, it is an allegation to be a, a finding of attorney misconduct, a violation of a DC bar professional rules that the DC bar uses clear and convincing. Oh, and, do and, they? Yeah. And, and like Larry said, my understanding is, is most jurisdictions yeah. do as well. So you kind of have this interesting dichotomy here where OPR will look at allegations that a, a AUSA or other DOJ lawyer violated a bar rule and they'll make a finding based on the lower standard preponderance of the evidence, which is more likely true than not. And then they'll refer it to that lawyer's bar and then their bar will look at the exact same allegation but do analysis under the higher evidentiary standard clear and convincing. So, so I guess in theory, you could have the D DOJ take a position that the lawyer violated right. the bar rule, but then the bar looks at it using the higher standard and declines to, right. to bring an action. Well, you have OPR operating in this hybrid way, right? They're operating as the federal employer and, and as like the bar you know, as, as, you know, the bar for their, for their law firm, for the DOJ lawyers, and they're applying these two standards in there. So, I mean, for my money, you're, I mean, I think they're held to this higher standard. There are more of these kind of OPR investigations that happen, I think, to career lawyers and prosecutors um, that maybe don't happen to federal employees. So, you know, I would think that the higher standard would go there because that's essentially what you're doing. Did they commit professional misconduct or not? Yeah, and you that's what the that, D.C. bar is doing. That's what the bar right. associations are doing. Virginia bar is the same way. And, and the public should know that uh, every AUSA is still a member of a bar, state bar, and held to those bars' rules and regulations as well. Mm -hmm. so, you know, you're, you're accountable to the department and to the association. And I assume the, the PREO in the office is where people can get advice on if they're leaving government service on on, on how they do that and, and, and things like that, or if they want to engage in pro bono work and, and things like that. Right. And Chris raised this issue. When you leave uh, your position as an assistant United States attorney, there are certain rules and regulations that um, are meant to protect the public so that you can't uh, take advantage of your prior employment as an AUSA and translate that into uh, an, uh, an advantage that you wouldn't or, or ordinarily have in, in, in the private sector. So there's a, a period where you cannot uh, represent a client on a case that was either in your office or that you specifically uh, participated in. And there are also restrictions on just seeking outside employment and that even just a blind blasting a resume out. Um, there's some limits and re uh, restrictions that, that you know, uh, lawyers should certainly check with their, their respective office, uh, their PREO, um, before even, you know, sending out that resume. So that's all the time we have, guys. <laughs> I want to let everybody know that if you want more information about NASA, National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys, you can go to nasa.org, N-A-A-U-S-A.org. Or you can give Dennis Boyd a call, who does a great job running their member benefits, member services at 800-455-5661. Larry, thanks so much for being here today. We appreciate the information. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Branson, and Roth. Have a great weekend.